You can be seated. Great to see everybody. Great to see all you dads. Happy Father's Day to our dads. And Andrew, man, it is a blessing to see you. I, man, I was just kidding you about your wife and kids. We love your wife and kids, but we're glad to see you. Buddy, you, you are encouraging to me because you are probably one of the greatest lion ball players in Lorraine Elementary School history. You are in the Lion Ball Hall of Fame, and I am honored to see you, brother. So, uh, man, I can't, 11 years. That's hard to believe, isn't it? That is hard to believe, man. I can, it seems like yesterday when you were knocking that line off the desk with those foam balls. I just can't believe it. It's, um, what, what a joy to see you. And, and uh, man, what a blessing to be, to have a history together and, uh, and to press on together for the glory of God. We're praying for you, and it's a joy to be in partnership with you. So, dads, happy Father's Day. As you all know, on Mother's Day, uh, the practice of our church family, on Mother's Day, we give the mothers flowers. And on Father's Day, we give the dads a chance to repent. So this is it, guys, your annual Repentance Day. In fact, as the society and the culture continues to try to cancel out phrases like moms and dads, uh, we, we, maybe we can change the name of this day to an annual Repentance Day. Uh, so dads, you can have at it today. Um, I, I didn't do as I, I, I don't... I've done some, a few special Father's Day messages. Uh, I don't, haven't done too many of those. Um, but I pray to, that today's message w- will be a good Father's Day message because guys, dads, we need to lead the way in standing firm in trials. We need to set the example. We need to be the example that the happy warrior, uh, the joyful Christian who rejoices in the trials that God brings us. In. And we're standing firm against them. And we're standing firm on the truth of God. And we've got to be leaders in our homes in that and leaders in, the, in our churches in that and in this church. So even though today is not a Father's Day message per se, I think it's fitting because dads, we've got to lead the way in listening to Peter's exhortations to us today. So I pray that today's message will encourage you to take the lead in the God-honoring lifestyle described by this passage that we're going to be in today and finish up next week. Second, I wanted to give you a quick report uh, from the Founders Conference that uh, Amos and Tony and I attended this past Monday. When I go to a conference, I always like to give you the highlights because I am your representative uh, in in a very real sense. So uh, I I just wanted to, I've got about uh, seven or eight just statements to highlight what I took from that that I want to share with you. Number one, hey, it's Baylor God. Okay, Jerry Longshore, Longshore preached from uh, that classic passage in 1 Kings and the battle between uh, um, uh, the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the true prophet and the false prophet. You know, why are you limping? Why are you waffling? Why are you hesitating between two opinions? If Baal is God, go for it. Serve him wholeheartedly. But if the Lord is God, if the creator of the universe is God... If Elohim is God, if Adonai is God, if the biblical God is God, then serve him totally, totally, absolutely. Quit waffling. Be resolved to stand on what God has said in every area of life, including the sexual area, including the area of marriage. God or Baal. Make your choice. Number two, 
This is a direct quote. Um, I think this was Tom Askell. The failure of resolve has been the bane of God's people throughout history. The failure of resolve, commitment, has been the bane of God's people throughout all of history. And he, he walked us through, especially a lot of stuff from the kings, first and second kings. And he walks us, walked us through that. And you know the history of that. Israel has some terrible kings like Ahab and Manasseh. But even with the good kings, even with the so-called good kings, you know the story. There was usually a line that said, and so-and-so followed God, except, there was always an except. There was always an except. They didn't remove the high places. They didn't take down the Asherah poles. There was always, not always maybe, maybe not with Josiah, but there, a great amount of the time there was always an exception, even with the good kings. And so the challenge for us is to remove those exceptions. Remove those exceptions. Be resolved. God or Baal. Number three, three things that will never end until Jesus comes back. I believe this was Tom Nettles. Number one, the quest for holiness. The quest for holiness. Number two, the acceptance of suffering. That's what we're talking about here in 1 Peter. And the fight against heresy. The fight against heresy. Those three battles will never go away until Jesus comes back. Number four, we can't rest in the faith. We must contend for the faith. We must contend, Jude 3. We must contend for the faith. Not contend for faith. The faith. Definite article is there in the Greek. The faith. The once and all faith delivered to the saints that's revealed in God's word. We must contend for it. We must fight for it. We must fight the good fight. And then Tom, said, Tom Buck said, too many Christians fight the stupid fights and walk away from the good fights. Let that sink in. Think about that. They, they fight the stupid fights and walk away from the good fights, the fights we need to be having. Uh, number, what is this, six? Too many in the church don't have the courage of their convictions because they don't have convictions. Too many in the church don't have the courage of their convictions because they don't have convictions. What is your conviction about marriage? What is your conviction about sexual identity? What is your conviction about race? Is it based on, is it based on the Word of God? And then the last one I wrote down was the courage to speak goes hand in hand with the courage to suffer. And that's a good one to end on because that leads right into what we're talking about in 1 Peter 4 here. The courage to speak goes hand in hand, must go hand in hand with the courage to suffer. So last week we began this section in 1 Peter beginning at verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 4 beginning at verse 12. Uh, I've got 12 uh, responses, biblical responses to uh, fiery trials. We covered five last week. Let me hit them again real quick because I want to add some things. Um, for some reason, I felt real rushed last week. I'm going to relax today and not feel rushed. So you just buckle up and get comfortable, and here we go, okay? But the first one, verse 12, don't be surprised. Do not be surprised. This isn't strange. Don't be surprised as so something strange is, is happening to you, okay? We talked extensively about this point. We gave two basic reasons. We're not surprised by trials because Jesus told us they would come. 
Especially trials that come because we belong to him. John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In fact, he told them, many of you will die. Many of you will die because of, uh, of me. But then he gave this comforting promise, yet not a single hair of your head will perish. Yeah, you will, phys- you will physically die, but you won't perish in hell. Praise the Lord. Okay? Then second, second reason we shouldn't be surprised is because God has always tested his people through trials. He's always tested his people through trials to show forth a genuine faith. Alistair Beck said, quote, crisis shows what's inside of a person. You know, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. If water's in the well, you drop a bucket down there, water's going to come up when you pull the bucket up. What's in the well comes up in the bucket. I said that, not Beg. Beg said, crisis shows what's inside of a person. It doesn't create it as much as reveal it. Crisis reveals what we're made of. Crisis, hard, fiery trials, hardships, difficulties, suffering reveals what's in our heart. Peter talked about, Peter opened his letter with this, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, trials, are sent to us to test the genuineness, the reality, the sincerity of our faith. And then I want to add a third reason. This is new stuff. This isn't review, okay? So wake up from your nap. This is a new one. Third reason today for trials, and it's expressed in James chapter 1, right at the very beginning of the letter from James, verses 2 and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers... When you meet trials of various kinds, so that echoes what Peter said about rejoicing. Isn't it interesting the way the biblical writers usually echo each other? Why? Because God's writing it, right? Okay. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, and that would include fiery ones that Peter is talking about. For you know that the testing of your faith, there's the testing again, But here's what James adds, produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, we know from the totality of Scripture, we're not talking about sinless perfection, we're talking about spiritual maturity. So, a third reason for trials in the life of a believer is for his or her spiritual growth. His or her spiritual growth. God sends trials to mature us, to make us stronger, to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. And that's another reason we can rejoice in them, because we are becoming more like Christ. Paul wrote this in Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's a heavy-duty verse, isn't it? It tells us, number one, that our faith is granted. The faith with which you believe in Jesus was a gift, Ephesians 2. God granted it to you. You wouldn't believe in Jesus without it. 
God had to give it to you. God had to act first and grant you the faith with which to be saved, with which to believe. But it also tells us that uh, our suffering is granted. Our suffering, the suffering that we endure in this life is granted to us. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God grants suffering to us to test us, as we've already seen, and mature, and mature us, as we see here in James 1. So not, but not only is this a heavy-duty verse in Philippians 1, but it's also a comforting verse to know that God has granted our suffering. And R.C. Sproul explains it much better than I could. Here we go. If we think our suffering is a result of blind chance and a collision of atoms outside the will of God, we are of all people the most to be pitied. However, if we know our pain comes to us by our Heavenly Father, in other words, according to his sovereign will and for his purposes, in, like we've said, showing forth a genuine faith or making us more like Jesus, growing us, strengthening us, okay? Then, Sproul continues, we ought to be able to say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. No matter what's going on now, everything is going to end well for the Christian. Back to Sproul. That is the very heart and soul of Christianity. Our Christian faith means nothing until we come to the valley of the shadow of death. So the prosperity preachers who are saying you've got to be healthy and wealthy all the time, are not even preaching Christianity. It's not even Christianity. That's not the faith. That's not the faith we want to contend for. We want to contend for the true faith. And the true faith prepares us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Secondly, last week we saw that we are to rejoice. Second response to suffering Trials is to rejoice that we share the sufferings of Christ. So don't be surprised. Do rejoice, not for the suffering, but in the suffering. We must have the mindset of the apostles that we pointed out in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41. When they had called in the apostles, remember they called them in. They told them not to preach about Jesus. They preached about Jesus. They called them in. And they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They, they were rejoicing that they were in the same category with Jesus. Do you rejoice over that? They were rejoicing and Paul wrote this in Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. He said, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why, Paul? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces 
hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And we will talk more about being shamed, ashamed a little later in the service today, okay? Maybe about an hour and a half later. We'll get there, okay? We'll get there. I had a dear sister tell me not to worry about time last week, so I'm not, okay? So number three, we, last week we saw stay focused on the end game. Stay focused on the end game. <laughs> We're going to come back to bite you, right? Okay, stay focused on God's end game. Uh, that you, verse 13b, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Stay focused on that. Like Sproul quoted the Job verse. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he'll be standing on the earth. He'll be there. He'll be standing on the new earth with all his people, all his family, all his kingdom, all his church. Jesus is coming back. Ultimately, we win. It ends beautifully for us and horrifically for all non-Christians horrifically, beyond description, beyond imagination, both ways, beyond imagination for us in a wonderful sense, beyond imagination for the enemies of God in a horrific sense. So stay focused, beloved, on a laser like that. Alistair Begg gives this illustration in his book that's next month's book of the month, uh, entitled, what is the title of that? Uh, Brave by Faith. Brave by Faith. You can check that in in the upcoming newsletter. He writes, uh, in the summer of 2015, the Supreme Court made same-sex marriage legal in the whole country. They foolish, in other words, I'm paraphrasing right now. I'll get to the quote in just a minute. They foolishly and arrogantly redefined marriage. (laughs) They thought they could, they could trump God. God's already defined marriage as between a man and a woman. And these black-robed, unelected individuals want to put on the whole country a new definition. How arrogant can you be? How, how, how arrogant? Just think about that. And my heart resonated when I read Begg's words in the book. Here, quote, it was one of those moments when Christians in a nation realize that they are not at home in their nation anymore. I expect that wherever you live, there will be more of those moments to come as we are increasingly buffeted, marginalized, and ostracized. I wrote in my journal that evening, this is the saddest day of my life in America. Let me tell you what I did that evening, that very evening. I happened to be at a wedding reception, believe it or not, and got into a kind of an uncomfortable conversation at one of the reception tables. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe a Christian was saying what they were saying. A professed Christian. Somebody who says they're Christian, you know, they abound. Okay, another message for another day. Anyway, I didn't write it down, but I made a commitment in my heart that day that anytime God gives me the opportunity to do, it, to do a wedding, in the preface part of the ceremony, before the vows, I'm going to remind everybody in that building, I don't care who it is, what marriage is, how marriage has been defined. I made that commitment to God. So when people come up to me and ask me to do their wedding, I always... Full disclosure, I tell them, okay, here's what I'm going to do. 
So far, I've only had one couple deny me. Only one couple denied. Okay, we don't want to do that. Okay, we can't have me. Fine. And fortunately, it was nobody in this body. I, I won't disclose who that was. But anyway, um, Beck continues. And then I added, but I know God is still in charge. So we proceed accordingly. So, beloved, stay focused on God's end game and proceed accordingly. I love, I love that little phrase, proceed accordingly. In other words, press on. Press on. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. This is not your home. You are passing through. Your citizenship is in heaven. Jesus reigns. He will stand on the earth one day. He will reign in full and absolute reality at the last day. Fix your eyes on him and press on for his glory and the good of your church and the good of your family and the good of your children and the good of your grandchildren and the good of everybody that God brings into your sphere of influence. Fourth, last week we said, receive the trial as a blessing in verse 14. This is what Jesus taught his disciples and Peter's just reminding us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus said. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Number five, last one we did last week, know that God is with you. Know that God is with you. Verse 14, and Peter, we pointed out, says it. He doesn't just say God is with you. He says it in a very unique way. He says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Okay, that's interesting to me. And we kind of unpack that a little bit. You know, he, he could have just said God is with you, but I think he wanted to emphasize something. You know, God's always with us, even when we're not being tested or tried or going through difficulty. He's always, he's with us on the mountaintop. He's with us in the mundane. He's with us all the time. But in suffering, based on what Peter's saying here, I think, In suffering, he's with us in a very unique, specific way. The key word here is the glory of God rests upon you. The Greek word means to give relief, to give refreshment, to give intermission in toil. In other words, when the suffering comes, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us to give us relief in the suffering, to give us a a break, a spiritual break in the suffering. To remind us of things that we've been talking about. Like we win, Jesus is coming back. Our citizenship is not in this, in, in, on this, in this nation, okay? And we gave two examples last week to try and illustrate this. And, and this is where I got rushed. So I wanted to revisit this again real quick. We, we pointed out Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 14. Remember the story? Joshua and Caleb, the only two spies out of the 12 who come back and say, let's take it. And the other 10 are going, no, no, we can't do it. Oh, we're grasshoppers. Oh, they're giants. Oh, no, it's not going to. And so Joshua and Caleb stand firm. This is God's promise. God said he's going to give us this. Let's press on. Let's go for it. And then verse 10 says of Numbers 14, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They wanted to kill Joshua and Caleb for obeying God. Hmm, I wonder if that'll happen with us. 
I wonder if people don't want to kill us or, or at best put us in prison for wanting to obey God. Who knows? I don't know. But anyway, Joshua and Caleb, they were experiencing hardship. The other 10 spies and most of the people wanted to stone them. And then the verse says, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. I think that's exactly what Peter's saying here. The spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. There it was in the midst of two guys receiving difficulty, hardship, trial, persecution. Their own people wanted to stone them. And bam, there's the glory of God. Wow. That was the Old Testament example. The New Testament example was Stephen in Acts chapter 6. He's, he's taking a stand for God against the religious phonies of his day. And at the end of chapter 6, the people gazed at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Why? 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 Spirit of glory. And of God was resting upon him. And he gives, he, he, he gives a long sermon. He recounts the history of God's people in chapter 7. At the end of chapter 7, right before he died, right before the stones started pummeling his body, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he acted just like Jesus, because what did he say? Father, don't hold this sin against them. Wow. Spirit of glory and God was resting upon him. Now, here's what I didn't say last week. Here's what I didn't say last week about that. Stephen was stoned, right? Stephen was stoned. Joshua and Caleb weren't. But the glory of God appeared in both cases. In other words, it wasn't glorious that God rescued Joshua and Caleb. Nor was it glorious that Stephen was the first martyr. It was glorious that they were all willing to suffer for God's name. See, the, the end result isn't really the issue. One guy got stoned. The other two didn't. But the glory of God was still there. The issue is, will you stand in the midst of persecution? As the founder's brother said, we would be resolved. We would resolve to stand no matter what, live or die, rescued or not. Read Hebrews 12. Some were delivered. Some were eaten by the lions. But the world wasn't worthy of any of them because they stood. They acted in faith. They believed God. All Christians are called to suffer. Not all are called to be martyrs. The manifestation of the glory of God wasn't linked, wasn't linked to whether or not the child of God was spared or died. It was linked to the resolve of the child of God to stand for God and to continue standing when the trial comes. See, that's the issue, brother, brothers and sisters. That's the issue. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'll stand for God when everything's going hunky-dory and, and smooth and good. But then when it's not so hunky-dory and not so smooth and not so good, will you still stand? That's the issue. That's where the rubber meets the road. Joshua and Caleb did. They didn't die. 
Stephen did. He did die. But the glory of God appeared in both cases. And that's the challenge for us in our day. First, will we stand for Jesus? Second, will we continue to stand when the hardships come because of our stand? Okay, that's a review with some new stuff thrown in there. Let's move on. Try to, try to get to number 10 today, okay? Let's try to get to number 10. We're continuing with the right response to fiery trials. Number six, we see this in verse 15. Don't confuse suffering for righteousness with suffering for sin. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Okay, in other words, don't, don't go off sin, sinning and, and, and then suffer for it. Oh, I'm carrying my cross. No, uh-uh, no. Not even the same category. So verse 15, in addition to saying don't do these things, don't murder, don't steal, don't do evil things, don't be a busybody. That's what a meddler is. You know that, you know that person who cloaks gossip in prayer requests? Okay. Peter also seems to be saying, because of the context that we're in, he also seems to be saying, more than just don't do these things, he's saying, I'm not talking about the suffering that comes from sinful actions. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a whole other category. Because there is a huge difference between suffering for sinful actions and suffering for the cause of Christ. And Peter's topic of discussion in this passage is suffering as a Christian, which is stated clearly in the very next verse. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Not for sin, as a Christian. The Christian's calling is to suffer for righteousness, not for his sin. And listen to the good news about that. Jesus has already done that. <laughs> Hallelujah. We saw it in the last chapter of this letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once, listen, for sins. He's also already suffered for the murderer. He's already suffered for the, 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 me, the thief and the evildoer and the meddler. He's already suffered for those sins. Praise the Lord. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. We won't elaborate on that anymore because we've already done that. If you missed that sermon, go back, find 1 Peter chapter 3 and listen to it. It's great stuff. At least I thought it was. Okay, number 7, verse 16, don't be ashamed. Seventh response to trials, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. End of verse 16, uh, that if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. When you stand for Christ and his truth, the world, listen, the world will want to shame you, right? They will want to shame you. This is the heart of the whole cancel culture idiocy. When you stand for biblical marriage, the world will try to shame you as backward. 
or a hater. When you stand for God's design for the sexes, male and female, he created them. He, he, he assigned our sexual identity. When you stand for that and say, no, you, you, just, you just can't change your biological sex. Let's, let's follow the science, right? Let's follow the science. You just, you just can't do that. Well, when you do that, you'll be shamed as a bigot or transphobic, transphobic. When you point out that God created one race, when you try to remind people of that and bring some, some, some sanity to the discussion about race, when you remind people that of Acts 17, 26, and he made from one man, from one man, every nation, every ethnos, every ethnicity of mankind to live on the face of it. When you remind people of that, you'll be shamed as a racist. Oh, you're really racist. You're, you're really, really racist. You say that. So the world's going to want to shame you. And Peter said, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed that you're standing for what God said. Last time I looked, he ranks much, 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 much higher than all the other talking heads and people who claiming to be wise have become fools. Listen, Jesus wasn't ashamed to die for you. So we should not be ashamed to speak for him. He was not ashamed to die for you. In fact, it goes further. The Bible says it really goes further than that. Jesus was, was not only not ashamed to die for you, but he, he actually despised the shame of dying for you. Listen to the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Here it is, despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he was more than just not ashamed of dying for you. He despised even the thought of being shamed for dying for you. And verse 3 of that chapter gives us a strategy for enduring the trials that God sends. It says, consider him, consider Jesus. I think some trans, this is where we get fix your, some translations just say fix your eyes on Jesus. It, it's, a, it's a focused gaze. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that, purpose clause, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? So beloved, as we say, as I say at the end of almost every email and the end of uh, every newsletter article, fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Spiritualize on Jesus, on Jesus. Don't waver. Eyes on Jesus. Set your mind on things above. Constantly think of what he endured to save our soul. 
And that will strengthen you to endure the trials God sends to sanctify our soul. Got it? Got it? Focus on what Jesus did to save our soul. And that will strengthen you to endure the trials that God sends to sanctify our soul. To make us more like the one we're gazing at. Oh, he's so good. He's so good. And if you're here today and you don't know him, you have not confessed him as Lord. Today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. Take care of your future now, right now. Staying focused on Jesus, dear church family, is vital if we're going to endure in this in this world that really hates us and is looking to cancel us. John MacArthur said, quote, when we get weary in the race, when our faith runs out and we think God has turned his back, when it seems we will never get out of the mess we are in and we are sure our faith cannot hold on any longer, we should read this verse. Nothing we will ever be called to endure will compare to that which he endured. And it was for us. It was for you, believer. It was for you, elect person who hasn't bowed the knee yet. It was for his church, his bride, his people. Number eight, let me try to hit these last three real quick. Verse 16 tells us that we're to glorify God. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. End of verse 16. But let him glorify God in that name. Let him glorify God in that name. This is our purpose, right? This is our overarching purpose. The famous catechism starts with it. What is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is our purpose. And our purpose, beloved, our purpose is not canceled when suffering comes. Oh, okay, cancel. Cancel the uh, question number one. Uh, you're having a rough day, so, man, you're excused from glorifying God. No. No. Suffering does not exempt us from honoring God. In fact, it gives us a greater stage for honoring God. It gives us a greater stage for honoring God. Our prayer should be the same as Jesus's. As he stood in the shadow of, his, of the cross in his last days on earth. Listen to his prayer. John 12, 27 and 28. Now is my soul, soul troubled. Yes, Jesus' soul was troubled. Remember? 100% man, right? He was like us. He took on flesh and blood. He was like us in all things except without sin. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So that's our prayer, gang. Not save me from this hardship, but glorify your name in this hardship. That's our prayer. That's praying like Jesus. And that will become, become more natural the more you do what? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. And you'll find yourself praying like him. So it's not save me from this trial. It's Father, glorify your name. Number nine. Verse 17 tells us to receive the trial as discipline. 
For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. We're going to talk, really unpack that next week, this, this phrase right here. Judgment beginning at the household of God. But for today, let's just take note of this. Receive the trial as dif- discipline. You know, it, God's going to discipline his church. He's going to discipline his children. Listen to, uh, let me just read Hebrews 12 with, with minimal comment. Verse, verse 5. Hebrews 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So we're speaking to believers. We're speaking to sons of God. Little s, sons. Not the son of, but little s. Children of God. Adopted children of God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. It's a proof of God's love. It's a proof of God's love. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there when his father... Whom his father does not discipline. A good father, Father's Day message, a good father disciplines his sons. Disciplines his children. Raises them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Right, dads? Happy Father's Day. Okay? Giving you a chance to repent. Okay, here we go. Verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate. Children and not sons. In other words, discipline from the hand of God in fiery trials is a proof of our sonship, a proof that we are Christians, that we do belong to God. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share His holiness. That goes back to one of the earlier exhortations. God sends trials to make us like Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says it like this, to share in his holiness. Just, it's the same thing. Different words, same thing. Same principle. For the moment of discipline, the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, beloved Receive the trials as discipline from God, proving again, once again, the genuineness of your faith, that you really do belong to Him. And finally today, number 10, be thankful that you're not lost. (laughs) Be thankful you're not lost. I mean, look at what it says here. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will happen? What will be the outcome for the lost? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What will become of the lost? Well, let's let's read it. Let's, Let's move to a close by reading about that outcome. It's not very pretty. Let's read what will become of this. Let's answer the question. What will become 
of the ungodly. And there, I got picked out two here. First one's in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. In other words, the intermediate period is over. By intermediate period, we, you know what we're talking about, right? The time between your death and the return of Jesus. Intermediate period's over. All the unsaved dead are brought before God. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of one of them, according to what they had done. Why were they judged according to what they were done, had done? I thought we were not saved by works. We're not. The bad news for this group of people is their works were the only works they had to present to God. They didn't have the saving work of Jesus. How sad. How sad. The only works they had were their own. And the Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so they didn't have the perfect works of Jesus to be judged by. They were only judged by their works. And that always ends bad. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Three times. Lake of fire, lake of fire, lake of fire. God wants you to know this, dear non-Christian. He wants you to know where you're headed if, you, if, if, if something doesn't occur. <laughs> Your salvation. And then Jesus said in Matthew 13, starting at verse 47, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, dear unbeliever, if you're here today, which do you prefer? The eternal suffering of the lost or the temporary suffering of the believer. Think about that this week. That's just another way of asking the question of the ages. How have you responded to Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father, please save our kids right now, please. Please save our children. Please save our grandchildren. Please save our our older loved ones. Please save any phony church members that may be here today. 
you are mighty to save. And so we ask you to do that. For every believer here, Father, help us apply the the encouraging exhortations of the Apostle Peter to our lives and grant us grace and strength to respond rightly to the trials we, some of us are enduring now and future trials that may come our way in the days to come. Strengthen us and prepare us for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.